Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a new podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We'll be talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better, for the worse, or still to be determined as we move out of shutdown. If you like what you hear, please consider making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. In this first episode, we're taking a look at the future of news in California and how the pandemic has added additional stress to local newspapers, which are already in a downward spiral. If they keep cutting back or close for good, how will we Californians get our news? We're talking about that with Colleen McCain Nelson, the brand new editor-in-chief of the Sacramento Bee and the regional editor of the McClatchy Company's four other newspapers in California. Then it's a conversation with Jeff Von Canell, the longtime owner of the News and Review, which has published free weekly community newspapers in Sacramento and Chico for over 40 years. They'll tell us how the last 12 months of chaos has changed everything about their industry and what's needed to make sure that important and accurate news still gets reported, written, funded, and made available to everyone in California. Hi everyone, my name is Vanessa Richardson and I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers. So it's been a little over a year since California started shutting down due to the coronavirus pandemic and the rising cases of COVID-19. And as you know, that has changed everything for all of us in our personal and professional lives, in our homes and workplaces, on the streets we walk, the shops we frequent and the resources we use. The pandemic has changed and shaped our daily routines, our hopes, our fears, our dreams, and our predictions about what a post-pandemic future will look like. For us at California Groundbreakers, it obviously changed what we were doing, which was live events with innovative people sitting on a stage in front of an audience talking about the innovative things they're doing around the state. But we were also turning those discussions into podcasts, and we decided to keep on doing them during the pandemic. Hence, this new series, This Changes Everything, which is focusing on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We're going to take a look at things like what the workplace will look like when or if we go back to it. What will school be like for teachers and students when they go back to the classroom from kindergarten all the way up to college? What's the future of hospitals and public health, the future of travel and entertainment, even the future of parenting, of dating, and how we do relationships of all types going forward? But for this first episode, we're going to focus on the future of news in California and how we'll get our news going forward. And this is especially a personal and professional interest for me because last year, in late January of 2020 to be exact, I was hired by the nonprofit newsroom Cal Matters to be their director of events, putting on live events like I did for California Groundbreakers. Well, six weeks after I started there, everything changed obviously, and I put together virtual events for the rest of the year. Like you, I got total Zoom fatigue and I really didn't want to be sitting in front of a computer screen anymore, hearing people share their stories and tell their tales. I wanted to see them live and in person. I miss live events and I can't wait to go back to attending them and putting them on. But during the year I was at CalMatters, I learned a lot about the future of news and what it may look like. 
Cal Matters is officially based in Sacramento. It covers policy and politics coming out of the state capitol. And it's a nonprofit newsroom, meaning it doesn't get money from subscriptions or advertising. All its news is free to read on its website, and it's available for other publications to republish free of charge. Cal Matters gets most of its funding through grants from foundations, from corporate sponsorships, and donations from wealthy people, all who care about quality journalism that's detailed, accurate, and unbiased, and they want to make sure that that journalism is available to everyone. But these days, that seems harder to come by. Newspapers, which were hard hit even before the pandemic, got hit again when businesses and people in dire financial straits pulled their advertising and canceled their subscriptions. Their competitors are internet sites like Facebook, which have been stealing more eyeballs in advertising from newspapers for years. But those sites are also known as places where fake news and misinformation can live and thrive. I get a lot of my ideas for events and people to interview from articles in California newspapers like the San Francisco Chronicle, the LA Times, and my hometown newspaper, the Sacramento Bee. I subscribe to them, and I don't know where I would get my good ideas and interview subjects around town if those newspapers cut more resources or close up shop altogether. Also, I don't know what would happen to all of us California residents if that happened. Where would we get our news? How would politicians and government officials and corporate CEOs and other powerful, powerful people be held accountable? How would we know what's going on in the world, and particularly in the community and region we live in? And ultimately, how would the loss of newspapers and the news they give us affect our quality of life and how our state functions? So in this episode, our first of many, I'm going to talk with two people who have been probably been pondering those questions for a while now, and their jobs are making sure we Californians still get our local, regional, state, and global news. So first up is Colleen McCain-Nelson, the brand new executive editor of the Sacramento Bee, which is owned by the McClatchy Company, and also regional editor for McClatchy's other California news outlets. That means she'll be leading McClatchy's newsroom in Sacramento and oversee newsrooms at the Fresno Bee, the Modesto Bee, the Merced Sun Star, and the Tribune in San Luis Obispo. Before she started her new job on January 19th, which is pretty much two months ago, Colleen was previously McClatchy's opinion editor, and she had lots of impress impressive newspaper stints before that. Colleen started her career covering local and state government for the Wichita Eagle. Note, she was born and raised in Kansas. And then moved on to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. She climbed the ranks of the Dallas Morning News, from local reporter covering local politics, to national reporter covering a presidential election, to being part of a Pulitzer Prize-winning team for editorial writing, focusing on economic and social inequalities in Dallas. She joined the Wall Street Journal in 2012 as a political reporter and covered Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, then she covered President Barack Obama's administration as White House correspondent, as well as the 2016 presidential election. So I was reading the press release about Colleen's promotion, and it states that as McClatchy's opinion editor, quote, she transformed its approach to opinion, ensuring that its writers across the country are focused on local issues that have clear and immediate impact on local audiences, and that their writing is grounded in original reporting. She has diversified opinion teams and elevated voices across the 30 communities served by McClatchy, both through hiring and the creation of community advisory boards. Under her leadership and aligned with her vision, that opinion should move at the speed of news. McClatchy opinion is now among the top five content categories in driving subscriptions. 
I'm going to ask her about that a little later in our conversation because subscriptions are a big source of money for a newspaper, maybe even more so than business advertising. And I'm assuming a big part of Colleen's new job here will be making sure more Californians subscribe and resubscribe to McClatchy's newspaper so that they stay alive and even thrive in this post-pandemic world. So we're going to ask her all about that. Uh, first question I wanted to ask Colleen was, Have you? are you in Sacramento yet? And if so, how are you handling the remote workplace situation, especially when you have to manage people in five separate cities around the state? Yes, great question. I am in Sacramento. I've been here for a few weeks now, and uh, so it's excellent to be here. Um, although, unfortunately, working in Sacramento remotely is a lot like working uh, in Kansas City remotely, which is where I was before. Um, I have had a chance to meet a few folks from the Sacramento Bee newsroom in person, which has been fantastic to actually get to have a few conversations face to face from a distance with masks on, of course. But uh, no, obviously, over the last year, we've all learned how to navigate remote work. And uh, and so we've all uh, much, much short dismay some days gotten used to uh, doing work via Zoom. And so I've continued to do that here, but am eager to hit the road as soon as it's safe to go to Modesto, go to Fresno, go to Merced, go to San Luis Obispo, um, and actually um kind of immerse myself in those communities and, and those newsrooms. Um, and But for right now, I'm working as quickly as I can to immerse myself in Sacramento and uh, explore the neighborhoods and explore the area and um, and just get a, a firsthand view of, of the city while, while we all continue to work remotely. So I got a couple of questions. I did ask people for questions uh, to ask you and our, our guest in part two, Jeff on Canel. So I do have a question from uh, a woman named Carrie here in Sacramento. And she wants to know, why is someone who has never lived in California the top choice to manage California's newspapers? Shouldn't they know something about the places where the news reporting they're in charge of is coming out of? So yes, Colleen, why as you as a Kansas corn husker, I'm not sure, you know, uh, is, is the best person to come in and uh, and uh, get the news to Californians. You know, what what makes you know or, or is there some is there some reason why someone from out of state would uh, have a good perspective uh, compared to someone who lives has lived here for a long time? Sure. And that's a great question. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, I would say. I'm passionate about local news and uh, the importance of local journalism. And so I have worked in, in different places across the country, as you noted, as you walked through my bio. But um, kind of the through line uh, in my career is that I just I love newspapers. I love local news. I've seen firsthand the essential nature of what we do and how important it is um, to to provide local news that is um uh, useful and and factual and um, urgent to our readers, and so I, I bring a really deep background in local news to this job. And um, and as you noted, also I've spent a lot of my career as a political reporter. So I love politics. I love policy reporting. Um, that certainly appealed to me about Sacramento as the state capital. There uh, there is so much to report on in that space um, around politics and policy. So I, I bring a deep. Background 
background there. And as my job as McClatchy opinion editor, I worked with uh, opinion journalists across the entire McClatchy, uh, all of our newsrooms. And so I worked closely with all of the opinion journalists in Sacramento and Modesto and Fresno and San Luis Obispo. And so I certainly have a fair amount of familiarity with uh, the, the narratives here, some of uh, the storylines, some of um, the sources. Um, admittedly, I have more to learn. And so that's what I'm, I'm doing as quickly as I can in, in terms of actually being here and, and exploring the neighborhoods and meeting people. Um, I'm, I'm saying yes to invitations to talk to Rotary Clubs and meet with um, individuals in the community and, um, and get to know the community up close and personal um, as fast as I can. But um, what I would say to, to folks in Sacramento and, and across California is that um, more than anything, I believe in the power of local journalism, and I and I bring that passion and um, and that expertise and experience to this job. And um, and I've I've seen what works in in other in in other places, but I also know that there are a lot of unique things about Sacramento and and, and about all of the markets in California. And so um, that's that's uh, what I'm working on right now in in terms of uh, working with learning from our newsrooms and learning from our communities. So there is a question or not a question, but more of a comment that I hear a lot and you probably do too. Uh, when the, the conversation turns to, you know, subscribing to the local newspaper, you know, and we'll take the Sacramento Bee as an example, because I hear this a lot. Uh, the quote, I don't subscribe to the Bee because there's nothing worth reading in there anymore. And my personal thought is, well, maybe if more people subscribed and kept their subscriptions, they'd have more money to spend on reporters going out to get the news and write interesting stuff. But for you, you know, if you hear this question a lot, what, what's your reply? What would your reply be? Sure. Well, I certainly would encourage people who say that to give us a try because I'm always amazed by people who say that. And then I start talking about some of the great journalism that we're doing or some of the really interesting stories that are relevant to people's lives. And um, or I bring up something that only only the bee reported. And in fact, they they heard about that and they they know what I'm talking about and they wouldn't know about it if not for the bees reporting. And um, and so I think a lot a lot of people have that idea in their head and they haven't actually visited sacb.com in a long time or perhaps they're encountering things that we've reported whether whether they're seeing it on Facebook and Twitter and they're not really um, tuning into the fact that this is coming um, from the B. But to your point also, I mean, you make a good point. Uh, the more subscribers we have, the more um, support we have from the community, the more reporters we can put on the ground and in our neighborhoods, and the more news that we can, we can deliver. And, uh, but I, I will say, the Sacramento Bee has evolved over time and we have a lot of information about what our readers want now. And so for a long time, I think newspapers were kind of flying blind about what readers want because we were only in print. We just assumed that we printed stories and people read them. We didn't know, uh, you know, specifically what people were reading or not reading. And, uh, and, and now we have all sorts of information, all sorts of feedback from readers and also readers give us feedback um, by what they actually click on and read, um, telling us what they want. And so I think we've become a lot more responsive just in the last couple of years in, in terms of hearing from readers and reacting and responding accordingly and actually focusing our coverage on what readers are telling us they actually want. 
Okay, and this leads to another question from a, from a groundbreaker uh, Rob Edwards here in Sacramento about about that. Uh, he, clickbait, I guess, is the the term that he brings up because there was a, I guess, some stories that I read in the this this past fall. Uh, the McClatchy company that owns the the B got filed for bankruptcy and and got a new owner and, and we're gonna I'm gonna ask you about that more in detail later on, but uh, after uh, the new owners took over. I guess there was some hoopla about um, an initiative uh, to link reporter pay to the number of clicks their stories got. Uh, so Rob asked, well, so does that mean that the slideshow on hot wives of NBA players got more clicks in a, in a report on how City Hall mishandled public money? Would that mean a City Hall reporter was at risk of losing his or her job and the B would run more celebrity stories because they're better, quote unquote, clickbait? So using this question, I wanted to add mine on to that. You know, what's your take on balancing newspaper stories that people like to read because they're entertaining, interesting, um, and running newspaper stories that they should be reading because they're important to know? Right. Well, I guess I just want to clarify one thing to begin with. Um, I know all of the reporting um, surrounding uh, the reporter pay issue and 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 page views, and I just want to be clear that um, that not everything that a lot that was reported in that space was not correct and or not completely correct. And um, and no reporter's salary is tied to how many page views they get. Um, and, and so while every reporter has access to analytics and every reporter has access to how many people are reading their stories, and I think every journalist kind of naturally wants to write things that people want to read um, because of who wants to be writing things that no one is reading, um, we're not, we're not handing out pay raises or um, deciding um, people's future based on how many clicks they're getting. And so I, I just want to be clear that, that that's not accurate. And, and I know what was reported, but um, pay raises are not uh, incumbent upon getting a, a certain number of page views. Um, but, but to the larger question, um, you know, this is something that newspapers have been wrestling with in real time. And, you know, when we first kind of got into this digital space and started seeing a lot more analytics, um, all nearly all of the focus was on getting on page views and how many page views are, are we getting. And I think as we've evolved and as we're moving closer to what I see as a sustainable new business model for newspapers that will allow us to hopefully not only survive but thrive, we're certainly seeing that the way forward is digital subscriptions and, and print subscriptions as well. That's still part of our business model. Um, but for in order for us to um, to keep readers coming back, we need to provide them journalism that they that they value and that they're willing to pay for. And so um, that cat videos will not get it done. And one hit wonder stories that, you know, kind of get get a national audience for for one story, but really have nothing to do for with Sacramento um, is not how we'll build a sustainable audience that's willing to pay for our journalism. And so we're really placing a priority on stories that our local readers value and um, and that help that is relevant to their lives, that helps them navigate the pandemic, that helps them understand, you know, is my kid going to go back to the classroom, um, that helps them understand the recall election that's playing out. Um, 
in order for us to be valuable and essential, um, we need to write stories um, that are actually relevant to the community. And and so, um, you know, will you occasionally see stories that are fun and that are not so serious and, you know, perhaps they're not about policy or, you know, um, something as, as, as hefty? Of, of course, we do fun stories too. We had a, a story uh, uh, within the last few days uh, that came off of something that was posted on Nextdoor about a dog that was left in a dog park and and um, everyone wanted to help this dog. And it was a not so serious story, but it was also a sweet story about Sacramento and everyone wanting to help this dog. And so we will do a mix of, you know, heavy policy and and stories with a lot of nuance and um, and also some fun stories. But we want all of those stories to be relevant to our readers' lives. And we want them to be stories that our readers see value in and, and stories that compel them to consider subscribing. And again, taking the Sacramento Bee as my example, because that's the one I subscribe to, I, I feel like when I read the stories and I get the email alerts and I, I get offered uh, newsletters to uh, describe to, I do feel like the Sacramento Bee uh, really focuses on state politics, which seems obvious because we are the state capital. They do a good job. Uh, also, the food scene here, I know there's a lot of interest, and I feel like there's a, a focus there on on state politics and, and, and food. And right now, the Gavin Newsom recall, I get a lot of uh, email alerts about that from the Bee. Um, not so much, and you know, maybe this is my perception of what I look for and don't look for, but I don't feel like I get as many clicks or newsletter focus uh, updates on the city and county of Sacramento as much. So my question is, are there areas where you see it's best to focus on based on the newspaper in the region uh, that the newspaper is based on because the reporting staff has the ability to focus on the area really well, you know, i.e. Sacramento uh, covering state politics. Um, and because it's a, because it's a big area of interest and clicks, you know, like food, um, and you may focus, you may have to focus less than others, or feel like you should focus less than other areas because there's not the money or the staffing or interest. Again, I guess like it's a question of balancing, you know, what to focus on and what not to focus on, and the reasons why. Right. No, it, it is a balance, and and this is a question that we're constantly reevaluating in in terms of where do we put our resources, and and obviously no newsroom has unlimited resources. Um, so you know we ask ourselves about what our readers want, um, what they're telling us is essential to them, and um, and we also want to provide reporting that's unique that they can't find anywhere else, and uh, and so uh, and and so. We do write a lot about politics and and state politics because this is the state capital. Um, we've heard from readers that uh, restaurant news is is something that they really value and it helps them live their daily lives. We published within the last couple of weeks uh, the top fifty ish restaurants in Sacramento, which we hope will be a guide that people will go back to again and again. Um, but we also do want to provide essential information coming out of city hall and and the county board of supervisors and uh, and those. May Maybe places where we need to look at uh, bolstering our, our coverage, and I think some of some of it's just kind of an ebb and flow with with news and and where things are happening. But um, but no, we're we're constantly evaluating um, what news is most useful to readers and um, and and considering how we can best distribute our our resources. And you'll you'll see in over the last several months and in the coming months, you know, we're looking at. Uh, what 
suburban areas uh, where where we have readership? Where should we be bolstering our coverage in suburban areas? And and so it's it's an ongoing process. I think one one thing that we all saw uh, get a lot of attention and focus on in 2020 was the issue of racial justice. You know what happened, uh, what George Floyd's uh, death uh, resulted in terms of just you know global attention and global efforts. Um, that obviously got a lot of news coverage, and I do feel like here in California that, that it's a big issue still. Uh, I wanted to ask about that in terms of uh, you know diversity and equity. Um, it feels like, again, using the Sacramento Bee as an example, but I'm also wondering about the other newspapers, you know, what are some efforts there in terms of getting equity and diversity and coverage, you know, in the newsroom? Uh, I know uh, last fall I saw a lot of attention uh, at the uh, Sacramento Bee starting the Equity Lab and a lot of, a lot of more detailed coverage of uh, underserved communities. So I wanted to ask about that. Are there efforts maybe like that at the other four McClatchy newspapers in California? You know, what's the focus on? What the results have been? What do you want to see come out of uh, things like the Equity Lab? I'm, I'm so glad you asked this question, Vanessa, because this is a big priority, not only at the Sacramento Bee, but in all of our newsrooms. And, um, and it's an effort to both diversify our coverage um, and also diversify our newsrooms and um, and consider ways that we can reach audiences um, that not only have we not reached um, in the past, but we've failed uh, to cover adequately um, and, uh, and we failed to represent uh, adequately in our coverage. And so this is something that is a, a tremendous priority for us right now. And so we did launch in Sacramento last year, the Equity Lab with several reporters and an editor um, and and they have done outstanding work right out of the gate and um, and, and have brought uh, a whole new energy to the newsroom and and a lot of really innovative story ideas, um, not only about things that we can cover as stories, but also new ways that we can engage with readers. And so they've um, they've done great stories, but they've also done listening sessions and they've also reached out to um, communities and and said, we want to hear from you. We want you, we want you to tell us what we should be covering. And they've also launched a number of virtual events. Uh, we have the Equity Lab is putting on an event uh, tomorrow on Thursday about um, just kind of the way forward on COVID and what to expect in, in the future and, and what our, our lives will look like. Uh, and so they're helping us engage with uh, readers and, and non-readers uh, in a lot of different ways that we have not done before. And so in the Sacrament, at the Sacramento Bee, we have the Equity Lab. And, and also, I should add, um, they also have helped the entire newsroom think about, rethink our coverage and bring... Uh, an equity lens to all types of different stories. So it's not just the reporters in the equity lab saying, hey, we should write this story about um, a, a black business, a black owned business. Um, they're also saying, hey, um, it, here's a story that uh, a reporter elsewhere in the newsroom might be covering and here's a different way to think about it. And here's a different lens to consider for that story. And so um, so they're helping us lead conversations across the newsroom and just kind of rethink how we approach a lot of different coverage. Um, in Fresno, we also have 
three labs, um, and they're covering a lot of different issues um, related to equity um, and education and economic mobility. And uh, and so they have a, a lot of uh, community-funded journalists in the Fresno newsroom. And then in Modesto, we're preparing to launch an economic mobility lab, which also will focus on a lot of these same issues around equity. And so very quickly, we've been able to, um, to raise uh, funding from the community and um, from foundations to help support these journalists. And we've been able to launch these labs that have um, been additive to our newsrooms that have helped us actually bring additional journalists to our newsroom at a time at our, to our newsrooms at a time when a lot of newsrooms are, are losing journalists, which has been fantastic. And it's also giving us an opportunity since we do have labs in Sacramento and Fresno and soon to be Modesto, that will give us an opportunity to build some connective tissue among these labs and figure out best practices and look at, you know, what's working in the equity lab and how could that be useful for Modesto's lab and um, and really kind of build this community of journalists um, in our labs and who can learn from each other. And I should I should ask when you mentioned the virtual events that tied into the equity lab, the one that you mentioned probably, well, it will be uh, happening before the, this podcast comes out, but are they recorded? Do they live on the Sacramento Bee website? You can find them easily. Yes. Okay. Yes. The video will be on our site, so you can, you can still come and, and watch it uh, anytime. Okay. Yeah. Just, double, just wanted to let everyone know that, that they probably, the yeah, virtual events, even though they're not live, they're recorded and they, and they live up there to watch later. Um, another uh, related area I wanted to ask you about, um, was the community advisory boards because that's something that you you uh, did so much work on in uh, your previous post at McClatchy and I did read an article in the Neiman Journalism Lab website so for uh, those of you who are also fellow you know future of journalism news geeks that's a great website to go look and see what's going on um, in that area Neiman Journalism Lab we'll post it on the the podcast information uh, so I read an article in the Neiman Journalism Lab that McClatchy will create community advisory boards for every opinion team in its newsrooms nationwide so that means community members will join internal meetings they will participate in interviews for candidate endorsements I guess political candidate endorsements and they will recommend topics for editorials and contributed opinion pieces so what does that look like, especially here in California, as you see it? What do you see or want the results uh, that to be? Right. So we launched our first community advisory board in McClatchy um, several months ago, and kind of our test case was the Miami Herald. And, uh, and we launched the community advisory board in Miami during election season. And, um, and it occurred to us that um, as hard as we've worked to diversify our editorial boards, and that was a priority as, as, as national opinion editor, was diversifying our editorial boards and, and really bringing different voices to our pages, um, we, we still no matter how many folks we have on the editorial boards, we still aren't going to um, hear from everyone we'd like to hear from. We're not going to have every perspective represented on the editorial board. And so putting together a community advisory board seemed like a great opportunity to engage members of the community, hear, um, hear about their ideas, hear what they think we should be writing about, and, and also just hear their perspectives on the issues that we're talking about and writing about. And so, um, so, 
they, the community advisory board members in Miami were able to participate in the candidate endorsement interviews heading into the November election. And, um, and they, they brought so much to the table just in terms of asking the candidates um, really interesting and pertinent questions and, um, and adding to the conversations about which candidates uh, the editorial board should recommend. And, um, and also just providing ideas about things the editorial board should should be writing about. And so we tested this out in Miami and um, and found that they that there was so much value in these community advisory boards and so made the decision then that we would launch these in in every one of our markets in McClatchy. And so uh, they've now launched additional community advisory boards in some of our North Carolina markets um, and also in Wichita, Kansas and Fort Worth, Texas. And so uh, the community advisory boards will be launched in California later this year, and I think it's it's just such a great opportunity um, to to bring diverse voices into the conversation and and hear from some folks um, who feel like they don't see themselves on the opinion pages or they don't see themselves in the Sacramento Bee. And um, as much as we try to cover all of our bases and flood the zone and 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 be everywhere and see everything, um, we can't see everything and we can't know absolutely everything that's happening in the community. And so this is just um, an, another great way to engage with our readers, to to hear from the community and, um, and ask the question, you know, what should we be writing about? What don't we know about? And um, and what do you think about this issue that that is uh, relevant in the community today? So we had mentioned up top that the, the McClatchy company uh, filed for bankruptcy. It used to be, well, the McClatchy family that owned the Sacramento Bee and a lot of the bees for uh, at least 100 years, 150 years. And now it seems like uh, the trend is uh, newspapers that were owned by families like the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and the, the bees uh, are being sold or unfortunately filing for bankruptcy. Um, and I see that hedge funds are oftentimes owners, the new owners of the newspapers. And in this case, for the McClatchy Company, there's a hedge fund called uh, Chatham, Chatham Asset Management that bought McClatchy. Uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon owns the Washington Post, and uh, they're doing gangbusters, it seems like, in terms of getting subscriptions, you know, quality of news. Um, there's also the LA Times that's owned by uh, a, a, another billionaire, Patrick Soon Shong. And, and so I, I wonder, you know, does it really, I mean, I don't want to get you in trouble with your boss, but it does seem to me, you know, these are business people and their, their focus is on making money. And then there's the uh, the mission of, of newspapers and, and the news reporters that may not necessarily, that may not be the number one priority. That sounds a little, um, you know, isn't that scary for the future of news, you know, in terms of who owns the uh, a newspaper and what their, their mission is? That's part one. That's question one. The other question uh, I have that's related is, you know, should there be some government help in keeping newspapers going if, if they are keeping down this road of, you know, uh, closing down? Because, you know, maybe news is like a public utility and therefore it needs some government help. But then again, there's a line of like government reach. So is there a way that, um, you know, um, this whole business model, which we will go into more detail in part two with Jeff Campbell, and I wanted to ask you in terms of like ownership of newspapers, who should own it? What should the mission be? Um, uh, 
you know, where where does it get uh, help and funding from the, the newspaper industry? Right. Well, you're absolutely right that that the ownership of newspapers has changed substantially over the last uh, however many years, and uh, and there are fewer family-owned newspapers. Obviously, the McClatchy family um, built this company and um, and 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 loved love these newsrooms and and work very hard over several generations to to build and support the McClatchy company. Um, so far, um, we've been under owner, new ownership for the last several months, um, and we have managed to protect every journalism job of, of every journalist in a local newsroom in McClatchy, even during what has been a, a pandemic and a recession. And uh, and so right now, the McClatchy company has has worked really hard to protect journalist jobs and um, and to really focus on core competencies. And I think, you know, the good news is that both the journalists and and the ownership of our company seem to want the same thing, which is is to build a sustainable model for a news organization. And um, and to your question about whether governments should should help and government funding should be involved, I don't know the answer to that, and I I don't think we're anywhere close to seeing that happen. And um, and I think that's a really fraught question for journalists when you're talking about getting money from the government, but also. Um, covering the government and holding local um, and holding government officials to account. And so there are a lot of different questions wrapped up in that one question. And so I, I think for me, the most important question is, um, what part can I play in helping us to build a sustainable model for a news organization, a digital news organization um, that can thrive going forward? And, um, and what does that look like? And and I think that it, we're, we're finding out that it looks like um, it's going to rely heavily on subscriptions, um, digital subscriptions and print subscriptions. Um, we do still have uh, revenue, of course, from advertisers, but you see across the board um, in news organizations that um, that a smaller share of revenue is coming from advertisers. So we need to figure out um, how to stand up a model that uh, where we provide journalism and people are willing to subscribe and pay for it. And, and for too long, we gave, <laughs> we gave it away for free. And, um, and, and now, uh, you know, newspapers have the unhappy task of kind of trying to put the genie back into the bottle and say, okay, um, news isn't free and, uh, and we need, and it costs us a lot of money to deliver you high quality fact checked news that you can, that you can depend on. And so, um, here's, here's the value proposition. We will deliver you news that, that is true, that is high quality, that you, that is correct, um, that is unbiased. And, and we hope that is essential to your lives and we will ask you to pay for it. So my last question for you, I, I think it's kind of a personal one, uh, just about your what your your thoughts are about this industry and why you are still in it. Because it does seem like such a tough uh, a tough road to be a newspaper reporter and editor um, today, uh, and maybe over the years. It feels like I just read how the general public uh, keeps saying they've lost trust in the media. Um, but then I, I'm a journalist, so I, you know, I, I support. Um, and I do think about things like, uh, for example, uh, the Boston Globe started digging into um, uh, uh, rumors and uh, comments about sexual abuse by clergy in the Catholic Church. Uh, they 
published like hundreds of stories that led to a, a movie called Spotlight that won the Academy Award and, and you know, changed a lot of things um, in the Catholic Church. Uh, so there's obviously some, you know, upside and some good things <laughs> that happen when you are a news reporter, but then there's so much tough stuff, you know, uh, recessions and just, you know, uh, misinformation, all this stuff, you know this. So I'm just wondering, you know, what, what keeps you going in this tough occupation? And I guess, you know, from, from listeners here, many of us who, uh, you know, just read newspapers, don't really know all the stuff that's going on. What, what, what do you really want them to know, especially now as we go into this post-pandemic future? Right. Well, so that's a great question. And I have to say, you know, I'm excited every day that I get to do this job. I mean, I wake up <laughs> excited and feeling lucky that I get to do this job. And, um, and so you're absolutely right that, uh, the, that the news industry has faced a lot of headwinds over the last many years. And, um, and, and whether it's, uh, financial challenges or whether it's people, um, saying we don't trust you. Um, but, I believe that what we do still matters, and I really believe that local journalism matters, and um, and and that's that's a belief that I've I've carried with me throughout my career, and um, and as I mentioned before, I've spent most of my career in local news, but I did work for the Wall Street Journal, and which was an amazing opportunity and a chance to um, to work for a national news organization. But even when I did that. I missed seeing the impact that a local newspaper could have. And um, and actually, I, when I, I watched the movie Spotlight, it reminded me of what it was like to be a local journalist and to see your work actually matter in the community where you live. And, um, and that's what gets me excited every single day because I see, and I'm just inspired by the journalism that uh, the B journalists do and the our journalists across California and um, and if not for their work, there are so many important things about your community that you would not know. There are so many um, misdeeds that would go unchecked and unreported. And, um, and you know, it's not every day on the scale of what Spotlight did, but, um, but there are consequential things that we report that um, change a law or save a life or, you know, change the course of events in our community. And, and I think that's what really matters. And, um, and I know um, it's incumbent upon us to show our readers and show people in Sacramento that they can trust us um, and we need to be transparent and we need to show our work and, um, and, and help them understand how we do our jobs so that they feel confident in the news that we're reporting. Um, but, but every day I'm excited to do this. And um, I think that the Sacramento Bee still really matters in Sacramento. And I, and I, want, I want readers to be as excited about the journalism that we're doing as, as we are. And I want them to see its, rele its relevance in their lives. And so, um, so even though uh, our industry has faced challenges, I still feel so lucky to be part of this and uh, to get to do this job. All right. So let's hope that this entices more people in Sacramento, Fresno, Merced, San Luis Obispo to uh, start subscriptions and renew them. Colleen McCain-Nelson, thank you so much. Welcome to California. Welcome to Sacramento. Uh, good luck in your new post. And uh, I look forward to seeing uh, more new stories and good stories coming out of the bees across California. Thank you.
Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers Podcasts. We're working on more episodes of This Changes Everything, literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on the right-hand side of our podcast page on SoundCloud, that's at soundcloud.com slash californiagroundbreakers, or click on the Donate tab of our homepage of our website at californiagroundbreakers.org. And if you have questions to ask about how California will change in post-pandemic times, or you want to suggest a topic to cover, or an expert to interview for an episode of this changes everything, email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org and give us a few details so we can get in touch. Thanks for lending us your ears and giving us your support as well. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to part two of this Future of News conversation. As we look at how the pandemic is shaking up the news media, which has been continually hit for decades from impacts like recessions and the internet. Right now, we're going to talk with someone who has seen plenty of those hits and felt those impacts for more than five decades as publisher and editor-in-chief of weekly newspapers in Northern California and Nevada. Jeff Onkanel is CEO and majority owner of the Sacramento News and Review, my hometown, Pub, along with sister News and Review publications in Chico and Reno. And to introduce him here, I'm actually going to paraphrase the intro from a Los Angeles Times article written last April by Meg James about Jeff and other California news publishers. So here's how the article starts. Jeff on Canal has weathered wildfires, recessions, and getting sued by a mayor in his nearly 50 years running weekly newspapers. But the Sacramento newsman met his gravest challenge yet in March 2020, when public health officials urged cancellations of large gatherings to slow the coronavirus' spread. Four days after an advisory from the CDC, Von Kainel made the brutal call to stop the presses and lay off 40 staffers. And he told the LA Times, quote, this could be the death knell, not only for us, but for the dailies that we compete with, unquote. So Jeff, I want to ask you to take us back to that, that day or that time frame, whenever it was, I'm assuming in mid-March, when you sensed that the news and review would be affected by the coronavirus and its spread, and also the day when you had to make that brutal call to cut people and, and do layoffs. I, I was at the gym at, uh, um, on the Stairmaster, and then the um, I think I was watching the debate or some sports activity, and, they, and the CDC announced that all gatherings over 50 people were going to be canceled. And then I, it's like a blow to the stomach. It would be that, okay, almost all of my advertisers, our whole advertising base is dependent upon getting more than 50 people there. In fact, that's my job is to get them get them more than 50 people there. And I, I because it's it's like restaurants, it's clubs, it's museums. Yeah. Places to go on a weekend or a night. So then, okay. So then I realized that uh my whole advertising base that we built the paper on for the last since 1973 that I've been involved in business has just gone away. And then when I got to the office on Monday, sure enough, one client after another was calling us to cancel their ads saying, we're not going to be open. We're not going to run. And so as then we just had to make the brutal decision of, of closing down and then waiting out the pandemic. Now, at the time, 
I never thought it would be a year that it would take to, to get close to opening up. Um, but um, so we laid off the employees, cut things back down, went into kind of hibernation of doing some things online and seeing what develops. And we were like, I think many people, like many other businesses, we didn't know what was going to happen. We just knew what we were doing is not sustainable. And so that's what that's what occurred. And we had never missed an issue ever in all those years, despite everything. And it all of a sudden to be shut down was was very traumatic. What was encouraging was our staff, the the kind of um, appreciation and love and how they came together, even in rough times and uh, was just really heartwarming. But of course, even made it even harder because we just care so much about them. And in this LA Times story, it said that it cost about $45,000 a week to publish the Sacramento News and Review. For those who are not in the newspaper industry, can you give us an idea of what costs make up that $45,000 a week budget? So uh, in terms of our costs, uh, our biggest cost by far has always been labor. That, that represents about two-thirds of our costs. About 24% of our costs has been printing and distribution. And then, of course, we have the building and et cetera. So the main cost is it takes a lot of people to put out a newspaper in terms of uh, the editorial staff, the ad sales people, the designers, the photographers, the distribution people. And so it's a whole mini enterprise. Now, we're and we're even very small compared to the, the Sacramento Bee or some daily newspapers, but it still is an extensive payroll. My, my payroll in Sacramento, I think, was about one and a half million. And if we haven't mentioned it before, you are a free publication. You do not get subscriptions. You don't. People can just pick the newspaper up or read it online free of charge. That's right. So we got almost 90 some percent of our, our money from from print ads and a little bit of online stuff. But um, what we found in terms of the economic model for us, and it was, we were, when we started, I went into journalism in 1973. We were all political activists who had done the anti-Vietnam stuff and civil rights and environmental movement. And we were very frustrated that our points of view weren't out there. The issues that were, that were important to us there wasn't enough people speaking truth to power. And so a ragtag group of us formed one of the first alternative papers in the country in Santa Barbara in 1973. And it was sort of miraculous. We started winning city council elections. We got the DA indicted. And we're, we're, we're sitting around, God, this beats demonstrating. And um, so that launched our career. And then, we're, then we had to try to figure out to how do we build a model so that we can pay our rent and pay ourselves. And then there was lots of different models that we're looking at. And we, we bet on the one that we could get enough readers, we could sell enough ads to make that happen. And that worked for a very, very long time until it didn't. And um, I think that's the, the kind of dilemma that we're in now, both with the pandemic, but of this long ongoing erosion of um, advertising supported journalism. I want to ask you about the the investigative journalism and the truth to power. But I do have a question about the advertising. One thing that I thought was notable about the Sacramento News and Review and something I've, I've heard over the years is that uh, it was one of the few newspapers in the area in a good financial place because you were one of the 
few or maybe the only one to pitch to ad space to quote unquote untraditional advertisers like cannabis companies before, you know, uh, it became the norm to do. Um, and, uh, you know, advertise like sex related advertisements in the back, uh, the classifieds, um, but also along with the advertising from clubs and restaurants and museums, is that revenue model gone forever? Uh, do you have to, you know, switch it up and not, you can't rely on that kind of advertising anymore. What do you think? Well, I, I think a, a couple things. One is to um, recognize that in terms of enterprises, that we were a you know a three or four million dollar enterprise in in Sacramento, for instance. But three or four million dollars isn't that big a number. And so, what was different about us is that um, with personal ads at one point, or with cannabis ads, or other things it could generate enough revenue to support a relatively small um, amount of monies that we needed, as opposed to, say, the Sacramento Bee, which needed about $250 million at their peak, and, and of course, it's much less now, to survive. So we were able then to develop these niches of money to keep us going, like cannabis was. So the, the line I always use about cannabis is, I don't know if it actually reduced stress, but I can tell you the ads always reduce mine. That's great. So yeah, about the the question I have, Jeff, about uh, investigative journalism. I do know that the News and Review has published some memorable stories. For example, I do remember uh, Chico News and Review was uh, was there covering the deadly campfire in Paradise back in 2018, right from the beginning. 300 stories uh, I read uh, published about that uh, from your publication, and then also investigative journalism is a big deal. You have broken a few stories over the years. And I just recently read a, a great book uh, by, a, of course, I don't have it in front of me, but it's by the media critic at, or medium columnist at the Washington Post. She wrote a story about how news and democracy uh, tie together and how newspapers uh, have just broken so many stories. You know, think of Watergate, for instance, where it has hold has held uh, city officials, government officials, community organizations um, uh, accountable. Uh, but with the demise of the newspaper industry, uh, that means uh, less of a break on that holding uh, government officials accountable. Accountable. So I guess you, in your in your view as a publisher and an editor, you know what does that mean if publications like yours in Northern California go down without reporters? you know, at city halls and community organization meetings? What does that mean for people living in the communities that were covered by the news? Um, I think it's going to be a disaster. I, I think that it's, the, the key about journalism is not that journalists are that special. I can tell you that they're not. Um, but what is special is to send somebody out who is going to do their best to accurately report what's going on and then give their best account of what is there because it's far more likely to be reliable than information that is given by someone who has no desire to give you accurate information. In fact, they feel their job is to give you unaccurate information like elected officials or like a marketing firm or like many of the online sites. So the key is, is then to have an honest broker of information at a school board or investigative thing, and then to have people know that information can get out there so that you they want to behave like whatever they do is going to be on the front page. Now, if there is no front page for them to be on, 
they won't, they'll behave like they can get away with anything. And so we're seeing that over and over again. And so I, too, um, in terms of bo both the watchdog and then to have an honest debate about information that the different sides can use because it's it, what someone tried to portray that information is really critical. So it's that, the, the ghosting of the newsroom and, and what's occurring is, um, is going to have very negative, it's already having very negative impacts in terms of rooting out corruption and making sure different voices are heard and, and it's impacting the decision-making that our, that our electorate are doing. And in your, in from what you see over the past year, um, do people in the places that the News and Review cover do they know about this? Do they care? Are they stepping up? What do you see? Does anyone realize this concern and is stepping up? In, in terms of, um, we've gotten we for the first time when we realized that we weren't having uh, advertising supported journalism, we reached out to our readers and started to develop. Um, kind of an NPR kind of campaign to raise money from readers, which we we were, we went from zero to, I think, $80,000 this year, which we were very encouraged, and we're developing our systems to do more of that. I think that has to be one of the components of any kind of future. Uh, so, and then secondly, I think there is, this has been a hard year with all, everything going on for people to get an understanding of, of my my problems, and despite these other bigger problems that were out there, such as the pandemic, but I think it's that um, people did not know, or, or, or were not. It's not recognized what a problem it is. The lack of, of community journalism, but I think there is as there as people are finding out it's existing, there is increased interest not just among our readers, but I think in the general nonprofits and other foundations and other people that we need to solve this problem. So it makes me optimistic that we will figure out a solution eventually. And it sounds like you have a few solutions moving forward. I, I did want to ask you about um, the Independent Journalism Fund. I found that one looking on the News and Review website for research. And it looks like you and your wife, Deborah Redman, who helps you run the publications, have set up the Independent Journalism Fund. Can you tell us about that, what that in, involves, and how has that worked for you? So we work with, a, um, we have two aspects of the fund. One is people just make a donation. And secondly, if they want a, a tax deductible donation, they can contribute to the Independent Journalism Fund. It's run by the Tides Foundation for us. They're our fiscal agent out of San Francisco. So then um, that sets it up so that then we can take some bigger donations or if people have a certain interest, say environmental coverage or civil rights or criminal justice, we have a way that then we can work with them to kind of set that up so we can do more of that kind of coverage. And so it's one of the, the different ways that we're looking at trying to figure out how to make sure we have community journalism here in all three of our markets. And is it still $45,000 a week to run a publication, uh, even post-pandemic? I ask this because, you know, $80,000 from individuals, that's, that's fantastic, but it seems like it would only go so far. So to get a regular stream of funding, um, uh, the Invest Independent Journalism Fund is one way. I am wondering about uh, efforts that are being made by companies like Google 
Facebook uh, that they're setting up uh, journalism funds to help uh, thousands of small, medium, and local newspapers globally. Uh, this is from a press release from Google that they announced last spring when they uh, put together a $100 million journalism fund. And Craig Newmark, who is the founder of Craigslist, uh, he's given so much money uh, to, in particular, the City University of New York in their journalism program. They've named their graduate journalism school uh, after him. But it's I find it personally ironic because Craigslist, Google, Facebook, they're seen as three killers, uh, or at least, you know, organizations that are detrimental to the newspaper industry, and now they're giving money. But they're $100 million, that's a lot of money. I was wondering your thoughts about these, you know, big, big tech companies that, you know, change the newspaper industry now, you know, wanting to help it. Uh, what do you think about that? Would you, are you taking funding from them? Um, we would, and um, we would like to have more of it. I mean, you're talking to the guy that um, did a lot of money on 900 numbers and cannabis. I'll take money <laughs> Google and Facebook. But I, I think it's um, we have some bigger issues um, in terms of Google and Facebook, in terms of um, there are obviously monopolies that need to be broken up. What they're, what they're doing to not just with us, but to the news industry, but I think to, into retail and other things, is is wrong. They've been they they've not kept their word. Department of Justice suits are totally right. So this needs to be this needs to be taken care of. And I think it's when it is taken care of, or if it is taken care of, then there there should be some additional funding um, to support news, but many other things that they need to that will fix because of this, these needed reforms. I mean, Google and Facebook are making major dollars from taking content that we create in the news business and then monetizing it and we're not, and they keep changing the rules in their benefit, um, particularly Facebook. I mean, it's outrageous what they've done and it's outrageous that we, they've not um, gotten the hammer yet. And hopefully um, enough things have been revealed that things will change and, and not only will the news industry um, benefit, but many parts of the whole economy including the massive disproportionate amount of income that's going to small numbers of Americans will also change simultaneously. I wanted to ask also, I'm, I'm going to see if we can try to break some news here on this podcast episode uh, and ask you about uh, a new business plan. Uh, I'm quoting him for the, the LA Times story back in April of 2020, where it says, even with the press's idol, Von Kainel has been trying to come up with a new business plan, such as teaming up with a nonprofit or a public radio station. I've heard some background or like that this is uh, rolling along and maybe something's coming along where there's a, a new type of media um, effort team organization rolling out in the area. Can you tell us anything about this, uh, uh, this effort? Right now, I would say it's more things are more aspirational than um, in place. I think it's. Um, I, I, let me let me go back for a second. I think it's um, when there is a dramatic need for journalism and community journalism that speaks truth to power, that represents different voices, that covers controversial subjects. It's needed. And there has always been a problem of how to develop enough revenue to support the organizations that are providing that service. And so for, when in, for me, in 73, we went to an advertising model. There was, there was problems in that model also, by the way. 
And so now we're in a different situation where the need is still there. We just need to figure out a new model to do that and to be open-minded about ways to do that. Certain things are very encouraging about that. One is the tremendous amount of money that NPR um, radio stations have gotten, et cetera. They've all they've demonstrated the ability for to raise money from the public, and it's and it's and resulting in producing some phenomenal journalism. So the public has in the past or shown their ability to do that and and to respond. All right, so. We're just beginners at this game in terms of being able to make the ask and to do that. And as and so I think it's but we need to be open minded and then um, reflect that the platforms that we get information out and we can raise money for are going to be different. And we should and, and to work collaboratively with other people that share a similar kind of mission. I think one of the key things here is I'm more optimistic in terms of having important community journalism that comes from organizations that are not hedge funds, that are not like Murdoch, that have their own interests, when speaking truth to power, they look in a mirror, as opposed to um, talking to someone. And so part of it is to have uh, organizations where the core is they have a goal of representing the little guy, who wants to give that them information so they can make reasonable decisions and navigate into um, a situation where it's not always in their interest of what's going on. That was for us the beginning when we were um, fighting the war or fighting for the environment and then felt like we were isolated, that we needed information so that we could survive in a society that didn't have our best interests at heart, which are clearly that's true now with um, People need information to deal with the financial institutions they're, they're faced with and et cetera. And we need to have places where they can get that information. So it's two, two questions for you before we wrap it up. I wanted to see where the News and Review stands right now you know, as a company and also the, the specific publications in Sacramento, Reno, and Nevada, where they stand now and I, you know, where, what you can tell us about their future, in, at least in 2021. So... All three of my markets are very different, and our position in all three of the markets was very different. In Chico, um, we have long outcircled the daily newspaper and dominated the news. We did, as you alluded to earlier, we uh, on the campfire. We've done over three hundred stories on the campfire. We have a circulation that is like probably six or seven times that of the daily newspaper. We've had this for a very long period of time. And so that paper was the one that was the most profitable for us. And that one is, is continuing to print monthly. And we're, we're putting things in place to come back um, weekly there. That's our hope and our expectation. And in Reno is the one that we was always our, our one that struggled the most financially. And right now we have a website that's running. And um, I don't know, we're not making money on the website. And um, so I'm not sure what's going to happen there. Sacramento, I think the situation is, is that we have ability to work with other people to put together um, a, a process where we kind of reinvent community journalism and work more in partnerships to accomplish some mutual goals and then to figure out a new path and, and to be open to that. And I think the key is 
getting people to play well together in a sandbox for a common objective. And I think that we have that in Sacramento. And I think we'll be able to do that. How that comes about, I don't know. But I can tell you, I've been in that situation um, before. When we started the paper here in Sacramento, we, um, this one, we were gathered in my house. We hadn't had an office yet. We were all around the little kitchen table. And I said in 1989 that um, we're going to be successful. We're going to be able then to make a very successful paper here in Sacramento. And I want to tell you that when we do, people will say I had a plan to do that. But I can tell you, I really don't have a plan. All I do is have you at the table here and we got to figure it out. And I have confidence that we will. And I'll get credit for it later. But um, that's what happened. And so I think we're back at that kitchen table again, knowing we have good people at the table and we have um, a record of, of achievement. And so now we need to figure out a new model to be able to accomplish that goal so someone can continue to give accurate information, continue to speak, speak truth to power and, re and represent the people that are not unheard in our community. And my last question for you is about is about Californians, what they can do to make sure newspapers, local newspapers, community newspapers can stay alive and thrive. Um, obviously, subscriptions to a local newspaper uh, is key. But what else? Uh, what else can they do? That can How can they be a member at that table in their way and, and help? I, I think the, um, the, the key thing is to ask the question is... Um, do you believe in democracy? And do you believe that accurate information so reasonable people can, can have a, a community-wide dialogue on issues is important? And so if so, then how do we make sure that there is that's being provided? And then once you ask the question and look at the costs of providing accurate information, then it's an easy decision to make as we need to make sure this is funded in some way and that individuals or organizations can play a part in being part of the solution. And so that's that's what I recommend. All right. Well, Jeff Von Kainel, thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to seeing what the future of news looks like here in Sacramento and Northern California and, uh, and uh, how you're going to play a role in that as well. Well, I really appreciate you um, asking me to participate in the show today. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers and This Changes Everything, Episode 1, which was recorded on March 23rd and 24th of 2021. Thanks to Colleen Nelson and Jeff Von Canell for taking the time to talk with us. Also, thanks to Nate Graham and Caleb Clark for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these difficult times, consider making a donation and supporting our efforts to produce more informative, inspiring conversations about what Californians should expect in the post-pandemic future. You can do that, as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, our live events, whenever it's safe to do them again, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. 